beginning in verse 12, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, this is what the Word of God has to say. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formally I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in, sin, in, in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world so to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to, who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. For all the advancements of modern media, the most effective marketing approach has remained unchanged throughout all of the generations since the creation of time. The most effective and powerful persuasive tactic is the personal testimony. It is powerful to hear and helpful to hear of what a product can do for you, its advantages, and, and, and all the things, that it, how it could improve your life. However, th that will draw your attention, but what, what really captures your heart and draws you to acceptance toward pur uh, purchasing something is when someone says to you, I use it, it has helped me, and you should use it too. Listen to the commercials today, this afternoon. That is the marketing approach by most of them. Someone says to you, I used it, it helped me, and you should use it too. In this passage, Paul declares the primary purpose of Jesus coming in the flesh to earth was to save sinners. In making this point, he shares his personal testimony of salvation. He shares of his sin before Christ and the grace that he has now received. And through his testimony, we see the common depravity all experience. We see the hope of salvation through Jesus and a testimony and worship that follows salvation. So that's how I want to divide our time this morning as I preach this passage. I want to begin with common depravity. In other words, I want to make the case that what Paul describes as his life before Christ is a testimony that all of us share. I want to share you with this morning that, that central message that Jesus came to save sinners. Your sin, my sin, that Jesus came to confront our sin and to bring salvation to vile, wicked sinners. 
And then I want to conclude this morning with a testimony and praise. How Paul responds to the overflowing grace that he's received with worship. Let's begin verses 12, 13, and 14 with common depravity. Friends, all of you were born into sin. The word there that we would use theologically is to be depraved or depravity. And someone who is, who is, who is depraved or living in sin, the, some of the characteristics of them are first and foremost, they are haters of God. Before salvation, all of you were haters of God. Paul's background was not in perverse worldliness, but in legalistic religion. His testimony was not that he was a bar hopper. His testimony was not that he was a womanizer, an adulterer, a fornicator. His, his testimony was not that he was a thief or a liar. His testimony was he went to church all the time. His, his testimony was that he was zealous in his, his religious legalism. Paul, who is also referred to as Paul, makes his first appearance in the testimony of Scripture in Acts 7 at the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr of the Christian church. And the Bible says about Paul that while those who were throwing stones at Stephen... Paul, as a young man, held their coats for them. And then in the very next chapter, it says, and he hardly approved of the murder of Stephen. He within the testimony of Scripture tells that he rose in prominence because of his zeal and his passion and his determination to squelch, to silence, to, to persecute the Christian church, to cut it off from the face of the earth. Paul would give his life to persecuting the church out of religious zeal until he was confronted on the road to Damascus by Jesus and was converted. But I want to tell you this morning that Paul's testimony is not unique. I don't think Paul's testimony is special in any way. Now, he shares in this passage a brief sketch of his life before, before salvation. Not because his story is different from others, but because it is the most common story of all. Before salvation, everyone is a hater of God. In fact, the, word that Paul, the words that Paul uses to describe his life before Christ are these words. He says he was a blasphemer and a persecutor. The word blasphemer there means to defame, a person who defames someone or something, the, the strongest form of personal mockery. To blaspheme is to treat what is holy with contempt, to mock the power of God, to offend God. Paul says, I was a blasphemer. He says, I was a persecutor. You know what that word means. It's someone who engages in persecuting others. But to persecute something or to persecute someone is motivated by a judgment, judging those as immoral or not worthy of existing or not worthy of being. And so it is, the persecutor says their actions are righteous because they are punishing, persecuting those are, uh, who should not exist. Romans chapter 1 says about those living in sin that they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, 
covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip slanderers and haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Romans 3 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And my point with these is this. Before the saving grace of God transforms you, Everyone is a hater of God, not seeking God, not loving God, but rather being a blasphemer of God, a persecutor of God, a hater of God. And haters of God also are haters of truth. Paul says of himself that he was a persecutor, an insolent opponent of the gospel. He persecuted the church. He was opposed to the truth of the gospel. The truth is, the truth will set you free. But before the truth sets you free, it exposes your chains. And frankly, when you're enslaved, there is some, there is some comfort, false comfort, but there is some comfort in denying the reality that you're actually in chains and enslaved. Truth will set you free, but before that it exposes your chains. And some of you who are living in sin would rather remain enslaved and ignorant of your chains than to be confronted with the truth and set free for the glory of God. Many prefer to enjoy the ignorance of their unbelief than to be confronted by the truth of the gospel. Last week, from verse 8, we made much of the fact that the Bible declares that the law is good. But what makes the law good is the very thing that those in sin hate about the law. The goodness of the law is that it exposes and condemns your sin. We spoke last week how the world and in sin we all work very diligently to silence, to ignore, to keep away anything that would confront us in our sin. goodness of the law is that it exposes and condemns our sins so that sinners might be brought to saving grace. Hatred of the truth flows from a heart enslaved to sin. Brothers and sisters, friends, before salvation in Christ, everyone is a hater of God. Everyone is a hater of truth. Therefore, when we preach salvation, we preach that salvation is through grace alone. What hope, what hope would one who is a blasphemer of God, a persecutor of the church, an arrogant, an arrogant of the gospel truth, giving 
the zeal of their life's effort to um, ignorant unbelief, what hope would that person have before God? And according to worldly wisdom, such a person would have no hope before a righteous God. It would seem that the righteous thing for God to do would be to pour out his righteous wrath on Paul and everyone like him. Indeed, it would have been righteous, but God has offered overflowing grace. Look at what he says in verse 14. <laughs> in verse 14, he says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The word there that is translated as overflowed means to be more abundant than a given Quantity to be more than, to be more abundant. In other words, that the idea is that it flowed beyond its banks. That it filled up your cup and ran over on the table. That it just overflowed what was ever needed. As great as Paul's sin was, listen to me, as great as Paul's sin was, God's grace was greater. Do you know what makes that so precious? And that makes it precious because as great as your sin is, God's grace is greater. A passage of Scripture that is often twisted by sinners looking to justify their continued sin is Romans chapter 5, verse 20. That says, now the law came in to increase the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increases, grace abounded all the more. Now, oftentimes that verse is used by those who want to pretend they are saved while living in rebellion, and they say, well, the more sin, the more grace. So what's the problem with the, with the life that's in rebellion? I'm just experiencing more grace. The word used in Romans 5, verse 20, translated as increase, where sin increased, grace abounded or increased all the more, is the same root word that is used in 1 Timothy, verse 14, as overflow. The root word means to increase considerably the extent of any of an activity or state with the implication of the result being an abundance. More than enough. Romans 5.20 and the testimony of 1 Timothy 1.14 do not say that God allowed, condoned, or provided for continued sin. These verses are joyfully testifying to the overflowing nature of God's grace. Paul's sin was overwhelming, but God's grace was overwhelming more. Your sin is overwhelming, but God's grace is overwhelming more. Grace means to receive undeserved kindness. Brothers, sisters, friends, no one deserves salvation. No one earns salvation. Not the religious zealot persecutor of the church, Paul. Not the fornicator, not the adulterer, not the thief. Not you, not me. No one deserves salvation. No one can earn salvation. We are all in depraved, wicked sin, haters of God and haters of truth. 
Everyone is a blasphemer, a hater of God and a hater of truth. But because of overflowing grace, greater than all your sins, God has made a way for sinners like Paul, sinners like me, and sinners like you to be saved. So Paul begins with this testimony of who he was before Christ. And then he, and then he moves quickly to the to the purpose, the, the foundational purpose of why Jesus came incarnate in the flesh to be among us. And that is, Jesus came to save sinners. Look in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Verse 15 plainly states the eternal purpose of God. The eternal purpose of God is of Jesus coming in the flesh and into the world to save sinners. From the first chapters of Scripture, God spoke of a day when there would be salvation from sin. It's been a theme, it's been a testimony from the very beginning of Scripture all the way to the end. In Genesis chapter 3, even while God was speaking curses over Adam and Eve because of their sin, he also spoke of a day when one of Eve's descendants would crush the head of the deceiver. Theologians point to that and say that is the very first testimony of the gospel and scripture. To Abraham, God promised that all the people of the earth would be blessed through his descendants. Matthew gives us explanation of that as he begins his gospel. He begins his gospel with the genealogy. That genealogy is in purpose because he's connecting what Jesus has come to do with the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He begins with Abraham and he comes all the way through all the generations till he gets to Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth are blessed through Jesus. How are we blessed? Because Jesus came to save sinners from their sin. Isaiah 53 would speak of a day when there was coming one who would bear our grief, carry our sorrows, would, would be pierced for our transgressions, would be crushed for our iniquities. And on him God would put our chastisement so that we would know peace and through our, his wounds we would be healed. Isaiah was speaking about Jesus who came to save us from our sin. John's gospel declares that Jesus, the eternal word, became flesh and dwelt among us so that we might know grace and truth through him. Now, I want to be very plain here because this is a, a place where we can get a bit confused. Jesus did many things, but the primary reason he came was to save sinners. We cannot lose track of that. Jesus healed the sick. Praise God for that. Jesus healed the sick, but he did not come to give temporary relief from physical ailments. He came to save sinners. Jesus confronted those who were abusing their spiritual authority for their own personal gain. But he did not come to critique institutions and organizations. He came to save sinners. Jesus confronted, excuse me, Jesus comforted the downtrodden. But he did not come simply to provide emotional support. He came to save sinners. Throughout his ministry, Jesus performed 
amazing miracles. Walking on water, raising the dead, feeding thousands from next to nothing. Making the lame to walk and the blind to see, the deaf to hear. Jesus performed amazing miracles, but he did not come to delight the crowds with spectacular demonstrations. He came to save sinners. Jesus came with the singular purpose of saving sinners by providing a once-for-all sacrifice for sin and calling sinners to, to repent and believe in faith. Jesus came coming to save sinners is the eternal purpose of God. And friends, it is the foundational truth of the gospel. Verse 15 is the first of two what we call faithful sayings in 1 Timothy. And it's the first of five across 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. These faithful sayings were probably words that were you know, this is before the, the New Testament was codified, and so these were probably sayings that the church often repeated as true and faithful teachings. Faithful meaning to be trusted. Full meaning that you were to receive it completely, that you were to believe it without reservation. To, to accept it means to come to believe something to be true and respond accordingly. In simple terms, what Paul is saying, Jesus came to save sinners, is true and should be fully accepted as a foundational doctrine of what you believe. In other words, this is a fundamental truth of the gospel. Now listen, this is where the faithful and the unfaithful diverge. Many, in fact, most, would be willing to accept Jesus as a teacher, as an example, as a leader, and even as a person of great wisdom. Jesus was all of these things, but to, re to receive the gospel, you must believe that you are a sinner and Jesus came to save you from your sin. The reason why that's so fundamental is that only sinners need a Savior. Only sinners need atonement. Only sinners need to be made right before God. You and I and everyone else are sinners and in need of salvation. And until you come to know that reality, you are a sinner. Jesus came to save you from your sins. And in him alone is the hope of the gospel. You cannot be saved. Jesus came to save you from your sin. One of my favorite verses, one of my favorite testimonies in Scripture is early in the ministry of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. It says that John the Baptist, who was still living at that time, saw Jesus from a distance. And as I read the passage, it just seems to me that it must have overwhelmed John. And he shouted, shouted reflexively. In my mind's ear, I hear it with a loud, declarative John was a prophet used to preaching out in the wilderness, so I don't think he was quiet. And he says with authority, behold, behold the Lamb of God. But do you know what comes next? Who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to save sinners. It is the eternal purpose of God, the fundamental truth of the gospel, and the hope for those who are in sin. Oh, this is the good word, friends. Paul adds a small parenthetical addition to the testimony statement at the end of verse 15. 
So draw your attention back to your Bibles at verse 15. Fundamental truth, eternal purpose of God. Jesus came to save, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. If you put it all together, the overflowing grace that Paul had received, verse 14, with the eternal purpose of Christ coming to save sinners, verse 15, I think Paul is humbled by God's response to his sin, of which he says, I am the foremost. But here again, I do not think he is unique. This is unique to Paul. I think this is a common response of all who have been saved. In the arrogance of sin, you claim that you do not need Jesus. You think you're good enough on your own. You claim that your sin's not all that bad. And you believe that Jesus has nothing you need. I, I don't want to, we've got a lot to do this morning. I don't want to press this too far, but I just want to make the point here. If Sunday after Sunday you're able to sit in your pew, not receiving the gospel as your own, not believing in faith, and you hear a preaching and you go home, then what you are saying by your own testimony is the hope of the gospel is not anything that I need. You think you're good enough on your own. You, you claim that your sin's not that bad or you believe that Jesus has nothing you need. But friends, in the glory of salvation, what happens is you are humbled by the grace that is, over, that is covered over your sin. When you come to know Jesus, you realize that you were never good enough. You were never going to be good enough to stand before God's judgment. When you come to know the grace of God, you, you come to appreciate the dark and wicked depravity of your heart and sin. You realize that the only through the blood of Jesus do you have hope, forgiveness, and new life in Christ. For those who have known the grace of God and salvation, two understandings eternally grow in your heart and mind. First, the overwhelming, unfathomable greatness of God's grace, and secondly, the despicable depths of depravity and sin that God saved you from. For those who remain in sin, there is a wonderful word of hope. Right now, you too may feel like you are the greatest sinner that ever lived. Paul says, I'm the foremost. And you may worry that your sin is too great for the grace of God to cover. But dear friend, dear sinner, it was for you that Jesus came. It was for you that Jesus died. His blood is sufficient. His grace is enough to save you from your sin. In fact, the grace of God, when received in faith, you will discover overflows. The deeper and greater you understand your depravity, the deeper and greater you will experience the grace of God. When, when, when Paul speaks about where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, that will not be an opportunity for you to sin more. It'll be an opportunity for you to be humbled greater. Because the longer you walk with Christ, the more you know of your own sin and the more you realize how abundantly overflowing the grace of God was. Now, one other thing in this passage. 
And that is, Paul ends with a doxology. And, and so I characterize that as a testimony and praise. A testimony and praise. Look with me in your Bibles where he says in verse uh, uh, 16 and 17, he says, this is the testimony part, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17 is the doxology. To the king of, a of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So the first part of verse 16 is a testimony to God's patience. In verse 16, Paul points to the reason for God's grace in his life, that Jesus might display his perfect patience, that Paul's life might be an example to those who would believe in Jesus for eternal life. Now, the patience of God is demonstrated in two ways. First, it is mostly demonstrated in withholding his wrath. And then secondly, it's demonstrated in, in bringing you to salvation. So one of the most famous and well-known verses in the New Testament is John 3.16. Many of you probably can quote it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now that's a beautiful, precious, wonderful verse. And the reason why it's so well-known is that one verse encapsulates the entirety of the gospel. God loved us. He sent his son. Why? For the eternal purpose to save sinners, that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But I think the next verse is just as important. John 3, 17 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And he goes on to say he didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already under condemnation. You see, sinners will not be condemned and fall under the wrath of God at some point in the future. Listen to me. If your life is not covered by the blood of Jesus today, the Bible does not say someday in the future you will be condemned in your sin. It doesn't say that someday in the future you will, exp you will be under the wrath of God. No, sinners are presently condemned in their sin and under the wrath of God. The reason why Jesus did not come to condemn the world is because the world's already condemned in their sin. Whenever the Lord returns in judgment and unleashes his wrath, it will be a righteous response to the rebellious sin of sinners. Though God could pour out his wrath at any time, he withholds it out of grace. He withholds it out of gracious patience so that you might have an opportunity to be saved. That's the point. Paul realizes that at any point while he was living in sin, a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, a hater of God, a hater of truth, under the wrath of God, God could have poured out his wrath. It would have been righteous. It would have been just. But he said, but God was patient with me that I might have an opportunity to receive the overflowing grace of salvation. 
Romans 9 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Second Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repent. Friends, God has demonstrated his patience by bringing you to salvation. So he demonstrates his patience through withholding his wrath, and he demonstrates his patience individually in your life through bringing you through to salvation. And what I mean by this is when you tell your testimony... Most of you, your testimony is not um, a singular moment in time, but it is a progressive work. So you can, you can tell the story of how maybe a coworker introduced you to the gospel and maybe how a friend began to speak into your life and how maybe somebody invited you to a church service where you heard the gospel preached. And as you string that testimony together, that, that, that linear um, a narrative of your life, one of the things you are telling is that God was patient to draw you unto salvation. All who come to salvation will bear a testimony of God's patience. Oh, God's been patient with me. He's been patient with you. God is patient still that sinners might repent. And when he brings you to salvation, you become a witness of hope. Paul also recognized that God saved him so that, he, that his life would be an example to those who believe in Jesus for eternal life. All who have been saved from their sins by the grace of Jesus are a testimony to others that there is hope in Jesus. Remember, at the very beginning, I said the most powerful thing is a personal testimony. I've experienced it. It's blessed me, and so should you. That's the testimony of every believer. I have come to know the overflowing grace of Christ. Save me from my sins. Brother, sister, friend, it's off, that offers to you. You should receive him as well. I encourage you to bear this testimony in two ways. I encourage you to live it and to tell it. Those who have been saved from their sin must most naturally are a living testimony to salvation in your hope in Jesus, in your rejection of the works of the flesh, in your devotion to the Word of God, and in your service to the church, you are living out a testimony unto Jesus. Listen, friends, your testimony of living for Jesus has to be more than a smile at the grocery store. You need to bear a living witness of your devotion to the Word, your service to the church, your rejection of, of the false service things trying to save you, and your eternal hope in the glory of Christ. But those who have been saved should also tell their testimony. In this passage, we have an example of such a testimony. Just walking through this passage. So recognition of your depravity and sin. Verse 13, every testimony begins with, I was lost in my sin. I was saved as a, as a young man, as a young boy, nine years old. But I want to, listen to me. As an eight-year-old boy, I was lost in my sin, rightly under the wrath of God. You don't need a spectacular testimony of wicked things to bear that testimony. All of you were born into sin. Your testimony begins with recognition of your sin, and you give no glory to the sin at all. You ever heard a testimony that the testimony celebrated more the sin than the salvation they received? 15-minute testimony 
14 minutes of that were how great much, um, how much fun they had uh, doing all the wicked things before salvation. At the very end of their testimony, well, then God saved me and I changed. Brothers and sisters, that's not a true testimony. A true testimony is brokenhearted and humbled over your sin before Christ, and the majority of your testimony is the glory of the overflowing grace that you have received through Jesus. Friends, I listen, I got things to tell you. I don't really want to make much of my sin before Jesus, but I want to make everything I can of the grace I have received through Jesus. You begin with the recognition of the depravity of your sin. You move to the gratefulness, to the overflowing grace of Jesus that you have received and saved you from the condemnation of your sin. And then you bear a testimony of how God has changed your life since you've been saved. That's a testimony. Every believer in this room must have that same testimony. Lost in the depravity of my sin, received the overflowing grace of Jesus. And let me tell you all the ways God has changed my life since I've known him. Testimony of God's patience, a witness to hope. And then verse 17, Paul gives a doxology. I would just, for your note-taking, write a cause for praise. We find this in so many places in Scripture. I feel like as a preacher, I have made this point in so many sermons. Verse 17 is a doxology. You know, doxology is a brief formula of expressing praise or glory to God, a liturgical or formal way of expressing praise. You may be most familiar, you, you may not be familiar with the word doxology, but you may be familiar with a doxology that we often sing in our own church. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You've probably sung that. That's a doxology. Paul concludes with verse 17, not simply to have a nice way to end the passage. I think it is in response to the salvation he has received. Just overwhelmed. What else do you say to, to the testimony of salvation other than to give praise to the Lord? And he says of God that God is the king of all time and has no beginning or end king of all ages. He says that he's immortal. In other words, who knows no death or, 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 or diminishment that he was and is and is to come. He says of God that he's invisible. That's not just that he cannot be seen, but rather that he cannot be known through human wisdom, but only through his own revelation of himself. He says that he's the only God. In other words, there is no other but the one and true living God. He alone is worthy of honor and glory forever and ever and then he says, amen. Amen simply means let it be said. And I would say to you, friends, let it be said for all of eternity. Amen. Let it be said by all of creation. Amen. Let it be said by everything that has breath. Amen. Let it be said by everyone who's been redeemed by the overflowing grace of Christ. Amen. Let it be said by all of those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus. Amen. I don't know any other way to respond to saving grace than praising God. A hundred years ago, if you were to receive the diagnosis of diabetes... It was a fatal diagnosis. 
The first mention of diabetes can be traced back to a collection of Egyptian medical text somewhere around 1500 BC. 1500 years, more like closer probably to 1600 years before the writing of 1 Timothy, diabetes was a known disease, but there was no real effective or known treatment. And up until 100 years ago, the only effective treatment for diabetes was diet, severe diet. Essentially, you, you, would, you would get some temporary pushback of the terminality of the disease by starving the patient. It was bad. On July 27, 1921, a small-town doctor in London, Ontario, by the name of Fred Banting, working with a student named Charles Best, successfully extracted pure insulin and injected it into a dog that had been, uh, um, had induced diabetes because it had, his, its uh, pancreas had been re removed. And almost instantaneously or immediately, after receiving the injection, the diabetic dog's symptoms began to be relieved. That was in Jan July of 1921. By January of 1922, the first patient, a 14-year-old boy by the name of Leonard Thompson, was the first to receive, the first human to receive an injection. He and the others that followed almost immediately began to be relieved from the devastating terminal symptoms of diabetes. Two years after the first insulin injection in Leonard Thompson, diabetes was no longer a fatal disease. Now just think with me a minute how dramatic that is. In two years, a disease that for over a millennium had, or, or since the, the Genesis 3 had been fatal and horrible and not very well treatable, in, in two years a cure had been developed that essentially made it manageable and people who were preparing to die went on with their lives and normal activities. You can understand how that felt miraculous. In 1923, a physician writing in the New York Times about this miraculous new treatment wrote these words. He said, one by one, the implacable enemies of man, the diseases with which seek his destruction are overcome by science. Diabetes, one of the most dreaded, is the latest to succumb. That's a hopeful word, isn't it? The invention of insulin and the treatment of diabetes is indeed an amazing story. However, I think the physician writing with exuberance in the New York Times in 1923 had his sights set too low. Diabetes is not the most dreaded disease. Nor does science hold the hope of eradicating all that seeks our destruction. The most dreaded disease that seeks man's destruction is the curse of sin. Listen to me. There will never be a shot there will never be a cure 
by the hand or wisdom of man that can set you free from the disease of the curse of sin. The wrath of God cannot be cured by medicine or corrected with treatment or therapy. Salvation from sin only comes through faith in Jesus who came to save sinners. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And all have the opportunity today to receive salvation from their sin through faith in Jesus. Friends, he came to save sinners. No matter how great or vile your sin may be, the offer of salvation through Jesus stands today. His patience remains today. That those who would confess him as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Jesus saves. Jesus still saves. Jesus is ready to save you today. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.